not winning 90% of your new business because you have some sort of incredible value. I'm gonna take a bit of a different angle. You know, I've got a budget this big. I'm gonna give it to you because you have a, a really killer plan. You give a Red Bull to a turtle, what do you expect? <laughs> I think that's a dead turtle. <laughs> so let's move on to... Uh, Be break. Cheers. 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 Does your current premium finance company lock you into long-term agreements? That's because they don't want you talking to us. At IFS, we win your business the good old-fashioned way, with customer service. I know you don't always have to use a premium finance company, but when you do, you should use IFS. Cheers. Hi there, and welcome to another episode of the Digital Insurance Pint Podcast. I'm your host, Tom Reed, and as always, I'm joined by my co-hosts, Steve Earle, CEO of Cheap Insurance. Hello. Adam Mitchell, CEO of Mitch Insurance. Hello. And Jeff Roy, CEO of Excalibur Insurance. Welcome, Pinters. So today we're going to talk about uh, what is a on and off hot topic, uh, broker independence. So it's that discussion has been around for quite some time. It was a very lively discussion back uh, in the early 2000s. Died down for a little while, but it's popped up again. We, you know, we all saw an article on LinkedIn talking about it. We thought we'd actually dig into it. So we're going to talk about the implications of broker independence or, or lack thereof on the broker channel in a number of uh, different areas. And first, um, just want to point out that my, uh, for, the, for the most part, my colleagues here are primarily independent. There are a few entanglements here and there, which I think is normal for every broker. But uh, you guys, none of you guys secretly work for BrokerLink uh, or McDougal, do you? Well, that could be independent too. What's your definition, Tom? I'm going to start off first. We have, we have no loan. We have no loan from any insurance company at this point. I don't believe there's any rofers that I've signed because I haven't taken any loans. There could be some contract buried away from nine years ago. I didn't read, but I'm not aware of it. So I would think that Excalibur is independent, according to my definition. Okay, okay. Steve, what's what's your take on it, Steve? Well, my situation is a little bit unique because I. I'm actually the principal at two separate brands, which are two separate companies, which have two separate sets of shareholders, which I think have different levels of independence. So we'll deal with Cheap, which was a startup six years ago, uh, needed working capital. We looked around and we have an insurance company that's uh, engaged with Cheap. Um, they do have some shares. Uh, it's a minority by far and there's finance arrangement there um you're not going to start it's it's pretty hard to start a company particularly in our space these days with no money and no recurring revenue to begin with um so but but is that shop independent i would say it is to a degree in that it places business with whom it wants it creates its own business plan and it carries on, you know, the insurer that we're engaged with is actually the smallest one by volume or in the, in the, in by far the minority. So that company is following its own path up to itself. Um, of course, there are ties. The other one, the traditional shop that I have at Bald, um, 
is it more independent because it doesn't have these hooks into it? It's still making decisions uh, based on what, what's in the best interest of the consumer. It's still following its own business plan and doing what it's what it wants and can say, this is what we want to do. And we're, we're not following a path that's set up for us by anybody else, nor are we following direction. Um, Adam, are you, are, do you consider yourself independent and why? Yeah, I think by every definition of independent, we'd be independent. Um, along this journey, we've taken loans from insurance companies um, and banks. Um, and we've got a couple different insurance companies lending into it um, in a loaning capacity, but um, we don't have any insurance company ownership, so I have control. Okay, so let, let me let me let me test your. So you, you all say you're independent. Let me let me test your hypothesis with two questions, and I think you've pretty much answered the first one already. And I, I look at it in the terms of our operations. Like, do you make you know you may have a leadership team or other partners, but within your entity, without you know with, without having to go to an insurance company, do you get to make operational decisions, strategic decisions? about running the business on your own? I think that, that question has essentially been answered. All of you are saying yes, right? So my, my second question is, um, Steve's closer to this, this aging out than, than well, maybe Jeff is too, but we'll see. But um, the other question is, like, big, like really high level, could you sell to when and to whom you wanted to you know, with, with your own with your own decision making, and let's let's say let's let's say you've got a two year time horizon. So obviously, obviously, there might be some short term encumbrances, bank loans, or what have you. That you have to deal with. But let's cast forward twenty four months down the road. Could you make the call to sell to a junior partner, to a private equity firm, to Berkelink if you wanted to? Uh, you know, two years down the road. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So to me, to me, you've. You can run your business, you can get rid of your business, you're independent. I, I like the other litmus test. Um, it came from, from Matt at CAA saying, uh, do you have the ability to decide to cancel all of the brokers on your panel, all of the markets on your panel? Now, I, and I would suggest maybe not all of them. I think you meant any of them. Right, right. Like, like, do you have contractual ability rights to cancel and walk away? I do, for both yeah. shops. Um, would people be mad? Yeah, probably, but I, I can do it. There's, there's nothing that stipulates that have that it has to be any other way. Yeah. Operate your day-to-day -day business. And the second one was, could you sell two, three years down the road? Should you so desire? Yes. I could sell two or three down, years down the road to whom I desire. Um, I would add a caveat to that with, with cheap because it's different. I could still get an offer from whoever I wanted, but the, the outcome might be, might be different. Um, and then you have to look for, for any other brokers that are listening, the, these sort of contracts. Could, could I sell it to my employees? Could I sell it to my kid? Could I sell it to, yes, I have, I have made sure that it's protected certain individuals, certain groups of individuals, all that sort of thing. Cool. Jeff. Yeah. Simple. Yes. And yes to both of those. Okay, good. So I think you know my, my take on it is with that sort of fairly simplistic view on independence. I mean, it's simplistic in terms of asking the question. It is powerful in terms of what it allows you to do. Um, you guys all meet that test. So I think I think Tom, I think that we're, we we're always talking about insurers. I think that the bank is probably more interested in 
my business plan than than any insurer for the most part. If you if if you're dealing with the bank, right? Are they or just the bottom yeah. line? Yeah. Well, they want to see that the bottom line's going in the right direction. Um, but I mean, the, we're we, we we're trying to lock down the spectrum. And you go back to before Jeff starts, you've got this like George Cook version of independence. Then you've got like sort of the, I guess the Louis Gagnon version of of independence. Uh, you've got the Matt Turek version. Can you cancel anybody else? So I don't know. There's it depends on how you look at it. The definitions are not what they were 20 years ago. You're either uh, it's not black or white. One thing in there, quick. I want to add one quick one thing in there too. Uh, the one thing is, if you are a company owned, the TAC or the take all comers market puts an interesting spin because you have an obligation to offer certain markets and you can't game and direct business to certain ones over another. Your hands are tied in Ontario. So it's more difficult for that those markets to move things around uh, than it was in the past, which, you know, obviously to their testament, maybe gives them a better case in some carrier areas or makes them have to choose to part with the market if that becomes becomes an obstacle, right? So just something I want to bring on how the take all commerce market kind of over blends onto this. So I think I think that's a great segue to our first conversation point, which is client advocacy. Right. So you know, whether it's take all comers, um, you know, in some provinces versus other provinces, whether that's, you know, whether I mean that's auto, if you're talking commercial or 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 property, you know, if you kind of mix that all together, do you guys think that a independent brokers, you know, someone who's, I think we just defined it as a bit of a spectrum. Someone, if we look at someone who's towards the George Cook end of the spectrum versus someone who's towards the Louis Gagnon end of the spectrum of independence, do they do a different and or better or worse job when it comes to client advocacy, depending on which end of the spectrum you're on? And uh, Steve, I'll pick on you first. Oh, um, I don't know. It, it... It probably comes down to the individual, but I, I think that if if you can say who's calling the shots over there and for who, so is that organization or is that uh, management team or principal or that brand, is it representative of, is it representing its customers or is it representing an insurer or two um, first? So. I, it was always my pet peeve when I heard some of the old guys saying, we represent ABC Insurance Company. It's like, no, 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 no. You need to represent, if you're a broker, you truly represent your customer in the insurance marketplace. Um, you're not their representative. I mean, part of this is going to be negated, I think, if you're, I'll speak for, for Rebo, which I know better than maybe in some of Steve's jurisdictions, but if you're going to sign off that you're, you know, brokering well in the best interest and intent of the client, then like the ownership of your cap table, if you are authentically actually fulfilling the duties of a good broker, uh, shouldn't matter. Like your shareholders may want you to act and behave a certain way, but whether it be take all comers or fair treatment of clients or any of the other pieces would hold us to a certain standard of the insurance act of what's allowed and what isn't regardless of what a shareholder wants for returns. Okay, so basically what you're saying is if you're doing a good job as a broker, who owns you, in theory, should be irrelevant. Beyond disclosure of like, hey, here's fair conflict of interest, but 
you know, an upstanding broker, if you've, you've upheld your duties, like I would think it doesn't matter. Well, I, I can tell you, so between 07 and 2010, I was the COO at BrokerLink and that was when some of these disclosure rules came in place. And, you know, we had to disclose on our website and, you know, a variety of other places that BrokerLink was a, you know, wholly owned sub of Intact Financial Corp. And there's, you know, there's no attempt to hide that. It was, it was, hey, that's the rule, no problem. Um, you know, the, the job is to represent clients, right? So I am comfortable that, you know, that disclosure is out there. Now, whether clients see that or, you know, pick up on it and, you know, understands the implications is a whole or, different or question. Care. Like, or care, right? Well, care, care is probably even the more important question, but, um, you know, I, so, I mean, if you leave that one aside, you know, I, I am quite confident that, you know, any broker that has you know, the appropriate level of ownership by some, you know, some insurance company is is absolutely disclosing that. I think the the tire meets a, yeah, exactly what you said. The tire hits a pavement. All these brokerages are going to want to provide the best service for their client, and they're going to advocate for them when needed, regardless if you're owned or not. Because at the end of the day, you're one Google review or one bad press release away from having the brand damage. So nobody's going to allow that to happen. Uh, I would argue that some of these other carriers have challenges right now because companies like CA have said, hey, if you're owned by a company, we're not doing business with you. So some of them don't have the quite the same selection as some of the other brokers that aren't owned by a company do have. So it puts them in a little bit of a disadvantage right now in the short term. But uh, that said, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, I think everybody tries to do the best job. I don't think depending on what spectrum you're on, you're still going to advocate for, advocate for the client. That, that's worth unpacking. Like, does everybody? Like, do you think there are places and operations that don't have as clean of a cap table or piece? Like, do you think there's people acting not in the client's best interest because of a cap table? Well, I think it was last week or the week before we talked about being super efficient with only three markets. Well, what if I went with only three markets because I didn't really have much of a say in it. I, 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 um, I, I concentrated my volume with three markets for efficiency. Is that in all of my customers' best interest when I just pick three? Or I'm made to pick three or two? Am I, who, who am I acting on behalf of here? Does it matter whether you're made to or choose to? I mean, the, 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 the impact on the customer is still the same. It's a good question. Good question. Historically, there's a broker in Ontario, I won't mention any names. They rolled a bunch of books for a couple of years, got the overrides, then sold to a bigger broker to get all those markets back. So that was their exit strategy. Was that in the best interest of the consumer? No, it was in the best interest of them. There's now rules and some regs in place to prevent that kind of behavior from acting. So I think in the past when there was a more of a wild, wild west and open thing, people did do stuff, hence why we got regulation right now. Right? And you're like, right. I mean, if we talk overrides, overrides, you know, has have historically been paid to brokers, whether they're, you know, so-called independent or 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 not so much. Um, and you're moving a book of business. You are not looking at every client, right? As a broker, you're saying, right, I am agreeing, I'm canceling market X and moving to market Y, or taking a you know chunk of business from market X to move it to market Y. And in exchange, I'm getting paid for that, right? I mean, you you could you could argue that um, you know those overrides probably are not necessarily in the best interest of your client, unless Unless you're doing it because market X has, you know, they've lost all their good claims people, you know, they're doing something strange on the pricing side that you're moving it because 
that market has gone to you know to hell in a handbasket. But I've seen overrides that are done because it's you know in the financial best interest of the broker. It's backfired a bit because companies have put in retention clauses into the bonuses they pay in the CPC because of retention, because of people moving books like that. But now it protects bad underwriting when the underwriter is not doing the job. So it's created another double-edged sword, right? Yeah. I, I, I guess my point is, you know, we're talking about client advocacy in the context of independence and or lack thereof. And, you know, I've we've all seen brokers move books of business, whether they're independent or dependent for overrides, right? So it, it, it doesn't seem to, whether it's a dependent or independent broker, that's not really, that's not, that's not really the driving force. Okay. So we've seen, we've seen associations, clusters and independent, like individual brokers, I should say, scream from the top of mountains, Hey, we're, we're independent. We're fiercely independent. And they must be speaking to one of four audiences either insurance companies, and we can talk through if that matters at all. Uh, they're on social media speaking to potential clients, of which I'd say, what are you actually saying? What's the difference? Are you saying others are going to do good, bad, other? Uh, current teammates or future teammates, or their own ego, right? Like, But is there anyone else they could possibly be thinking they're talking to when they yell this? It goes back to... Uh... Does the consumer really care, Adam? Do do they? And I I, I would I would argue though that in, in that um, the, the the commercial customer is usually a bit more astute when it comes to that sort of thing. So what is what's the commercial customer worried about? Dealing with yet another company. I got an invoice from this company two years ago. I got an invoice from this one. I got an invoice. Now I've got an invoice from this one. I didn't change anything. I didn't change my broker, but yet I've dealt with three over the last four years. Because the broker kept getting bought sort of thing? Does does that matter to the customer, whether it's personal lines or commercial lines? But I think the important part on that conversation or to your client on either is, hey, Tell me that you're not going to sell this thing in one, three, five, ten years, so that I can like be stable and know who I'm talking to, right? Yeah, I think that's a good point. I would add the fifth one, Adam, to your list is other brokers. You mentioned companies, potential clients, teammates, your ego, but other brokers because you see the value propositions when we were pitched. Everybody a different angle, and I think it was Bruce uh, from Acera. Now it was from Rogers at the time that mentions that they're the only one owned by independent venture capital money with a minority stake. And his play on that was by being owned by them, decisions are made in Canada, not in another country, and they're not going to get bought and sold like some of these other entities where venture capital is in there. They cash out. We don't know who's bought them next. Now, there's a perception that being owned by a Canadian company is better or worse. That's another up for debate. It depends on people's per personal preference. Does the consumer really care? As long as you got markets and you're competitive and doing your job, I don't know if they really care to go down the rabbit hole of ownership until there's a problem, right? I don't think anybody's ever going to do that. You mentioned the staff care because you know some people don't want to be part of a big monolithic 2,000 person entity where they're employee number 1,999. Others like the opportunity to do that and have uh, employee stock ownership, right? So there's a bunch of different plays, but I think your list is good. I would just add brokers as number five onto that list. So here, here's a question, back to the, the money piece. Um, are you independent enough to say, I could have a 5% EBITDA and I'm the only one who gives a shit about it. Nobody will, nobody will question me on it. 
right? So there's like there's like fifty shades of independence here. Is it independence from from uh, big money? Is it independence from like what? If we role play, Steve, and say, okay, uh, you're independent, and I'm the big bad, not independent. I have ownership via four insurance companies and two private equities, right? Like just a clustering of all the worst. So what? Does it matter to the consumer? I it's going to keep some sort of stable ship on something who's been successful in that. And you can go bipolar and go left, right, and center and things. So like yeah. in my version of the debate club, I'm more stable. and going to be straight, narrow, and a responsible operating thing. So let's, let's, let's turn our attention to uh, staff because we started to pick away at that one here. So our second category of conversation is, does your positioning on the spectrum of independence help you attract staff, you know, slash retain staff or not? I don't think it's a spectrum, Tom. There's no, there's no more spectrum from, from left to right on independence. It's like a freaking Venn diagram now. It, <laughs> seriously. Like it, 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 it's not linear any, any longer. Okay. So let me, let me rephrase that. So depending on where you sit on the hypercube of broker independence, <laughs> does that help attract and or retain staff? I mean, I'd argue, so it, it, it's a minority of all conversations ever. I think, I don't think like 98% of any, any teammates or prospects are, are going through this. Um, of that one. So if I'm talking to that person who has it, it's like, well, actually there's a business case to be said that if it is owned by an insurance company who is trying to secure their distribution, even of a minority angle, you're like, well, that's now a cemented path. It's not going somewhere else. Insurance companies don't trade brokers, not often. Okay. Steve, Jeff, guys, like, you know, you're you're on the you know one end of the hypercube. Are are, are you finding it, relatively speaking, easier to retain slash, slash attract staff because because of that, not because of your location or anything else, but because people come and say, hey, I like the fact that you know Jeff's the owner. I know who's running the shop. Therefore, I want to go work there. And Jeff, does that do you, do you find do you find that? Not sure. I'm not the one to be able to say that that's definitively. You know, like I think it comes down. Do you want to be part of a smaller team or bigger team? I think maybe size has more of it. Some people there's pros and cons of it, right? So I wouldn't say it comes down to ownership versus company versus not. I don't think that really necessarily factors in as much as people think. But I think that there's there's certain type just like there's certain types of customers. There's certain types of um team members that that thrive in particular types of environments when some people don't want to work for a company that has 2000 employees in there just a number and um these sort of things there's pros and cons to working for a big company or a small company and those pros and cons weigh differently on different types of people depending upon where they live who they are what their experience is and so on i'll, I'll agree and pile on i said the red herring here is the ownership cap table like the difference is size of company, culture, values, like those are all true. There's an upside to a big company as there's all kinds of layers you can get promoted and escalate within. Downside, you're probably going to have a pretty narrow channel and uh, job description and responsibilities for any of the different bandings and bars. You go to a small company, you can probably get a wide swath of responsibilities and things you can take on and walk into the principal's office and have a discussion like, those are different, but unrelated to cap table in my mind. 
Okay. So, so far we've talked about client advocacy and I think we've kind of concluded, doesn't matter, staff attraction slash retention. It's not directly tied to the independence. It's tied, as Adam just said, more to the culture and size and opportunity and so on. So not, so again, sort of a strikeout from an independence perspective. Let's move on to carrier relationships, right? And I, I, I'll, I'll preface this one by saying, going back to you know, when I was at Berkelink, that was a time when this was a big deal in the industry and Berkelink um, at the time was very focused on its relationship with Intact, right? And say my relationships with other carriers were exceedingly difficult at the time. I think that has changed quite dramatically. And then the, the main thing we're under now is, does it, should it matter? Should we advise or think it matters for carriers? Yeah, well, so if you are a independent broker, are your relationships with carriers better or worse or the same than if you're a um, you know owned or partially owned brokerage? I bet you again it matters more based on on scale and operation than it does on the ownership. I think there is some ownership slights in that like you can't make it to the top tier clubs to a number of the brokers without either having ownership or you're barred because you have ownership from competitors, right? Um, So that's a material difference in the relationship based on a cap table. But the most part, the quality of representation and time you get with a company is probably gonna be based on how much volume do you support them with and the profitability of that. Yeah, I agree with Adam 100%. Growth scale profitability. You know, what's your sales velocity? Are you growing with them? Are you profitable? That seems to have shifted. And again, you know, the biggest advantage or disadvantage is the bigger people. So if you've got billions of dollars in premium and you've got four or 500 million with a carrier, your relationship's a lot different than if you're a $30 million brokerage, right? And, you know, that's the way it's Pareto's principle. You're ranked. That's the way most companies have segmented it, right? More so than independence versus not. The only thing, as I said earlier, is if your company owned right now, currently CA will not give you a contract. In the past, I know travelers, I think with uh, G- uh, George Cook took a hard stance, but then reversed it. And I think a lot of people, the early stance about, hey, if you're bought by this, we're getting rid of you. That has largely gone away. And some of these people that, you know, some of the other markets, their biggest carriers are sometimes owned by companies now. So they, they've been able to learn to play ball in there. Well, let, me, let me just elaborate on the, uh, the, the well, Dominion at the time, George Cook. Because I was, you know, in the rooms for some of these conversations, you know, Dominion was a 800 to a billion dollar premium insurance company at the time, and they uh, were so focused on broker dependence, they made the decision to cancel a slew of brokers that added up to about 100 million of, of their own premium. Right? So they took a very hard, fairly dramatic stance, you know, it's like 08 or 09, something like that, and probably chopped, you know, 10% of their business off the books because of the broker dependence thing. That's clearly changed. Right? There are, you know, a number of carriers that do business with, you know, whether it's BrokerLink or one of the other sort of obvious candidates, and you know, manage a relationship. I I was in the room for some of those discussions with George too, and I could still remember his point was, I'm, I don't want to invest a great deal in a relationship when I know that eventually, that business will be taken away. So why would I continue to invest in that relationship? It could be next year, it could be three or four years from now or whatever, but eventually that book of business, I will lose it. So we're just gonna cut ties now. That was his stance at the time, right? Yeah, and I would say 
I would say so far, you know, 15 years later, that's proven to be wrong, right? Those those markets that, again, I'll just pick on Brooklyn because that's the one I know, you know, those markets, you know, Economical was one of the first markets to sort of come back into a relationship with BrokerLink, and they did ex- extremely well from that. And you know, 15 years on, it's still going. So, other than a couple of outliers, insurers don't really seem to care either. Yeah. So, okay, we're strike out on client advocacy, strike out on staff, strike out on care relationships. Let's move on to our next one: business perpetuation, succession. And uh, you guys have. I'm not sure if Adam's thinking about that yet, but I know Jeff and Steve with your advanced ages. Um, <laughs> you, you probably, you know, whether you've made plans or you've probably been thinking about it. Do you have, do you feel that you're in a better situation than somebody who's you know, on the other side of the hypercube uh, in terms of uh, perpetu- perpetuating your business? Well, I, I, would, I would say that the fact that we can even think about it says something. Otherwise... If we, if we were totally at the somewhere else on the chart there, like completely not independent, we wouldn't think about it because what's there to think about? It's already set. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's, right? it's already part of the shares of Intact or Definity or it's, whoever, it's, right? It's already written down. This is what will happen and this it could even be and, and this is when uh, or this is what happens if this. So I don't know. The fact that you can even think about having a timeline and what you want to do, that could be a marker of independence. I don't know. I, th- I think the big thing is, like I said, uh, you know, us being an older guy, not quite old as dirt, because I'm the second oldest guy in the podcast, not the oldest. Uh, but <laughs> it'll, uh, be, it'll be me for the record. Yeah, I'm not yeah. going to say. I'm not going to mention names. I am second oldest, but uh, I'm third. Uh, so yeah, there. there you go. And uh, Adam's a young guy in the spring chicken. But I think the big thing is autonomy. Like, again, if somebody was in that position, it's good as a business person, you create a business, you know, basically at some point to get rid of it, right? Yeah, business either gets runs, uh, goes bankrupt or gets sold. There's only two things a business can do, right? If you're independent, you have you have a choice of where things go. And if you're company owned, it's pretty obvious that if you have a portion, guess who has the first right of refusal, right? So you have absolutely no choice. And you may have made a decision that seemed good five years ago that you're in, that you can't, that you're down that path, you can't get out of it. Whereas if you're 100% independent, you have the flexibility that you can be fluid, you have choice, right? So I think that's good as independent business owners and entrepreneurs, people like choice. Okay, awesome. Uh, Adam, what's your take? The thing that can get tangled in this is as some of these businesses and brokerages are succeeding or buying their way into the too big to succeed, then you're kind of painted into a corner of like, well, now there is only a dozen buyers in Canada that can transact this. Yeah, who's not that many people can buy a billion dollar brokerage. Even even a hundred million. That just gave me a great point there. Like, so even if it was a um a family member or kids coming up through with the size and the valuation. Now we, you might have a broker that's independent today, but could the next generation do it independently? That I think has closed the ability for the next generation to do it entirely independent. I was thinking of this today. So we saw just across the wire, the, the McFarland Rollins uh, bought by Definity. Um, Looks like a massive valuation comes public, and I, I like McFarland Rollins and Burke and that team. I think they did a good job. So, congrats to buyer and seller. But when you think of the ecosystem of how long will it take startups to amass a two hundred and fifty million dollar brokerage? 
So if these transactions and within the last year, you saw McDougal's and McFarland's go, it's like, you know how long it's going to take a feeder system of startups with exactly the headwinds you're talking about, Steve, of like, it's kind of impossible now. They can't get markets. You can't get market share. You can't get airtime onto SEO. SEM's unaffordable. Like, we're watching like a one-way train in this consolidation where although there's startup numbers, I don't think the volume will catch up. So what like you're saying is like farming. It's almost unattainable to get into it. It's very difficult. Is that what you're saying? Like land's got so high at $35,000 an acre, your cost of capital get in. And again, yeah, it's funny in the States, the startups seem to do well and there's a big insurgencies of them. So I'm not sure if this, the, it's gone through more of a cycle or with 37,000 agents that, you know, most of them are using some kind of person when you start up though, that's got the companies and volumes to get them off the ground. Right. So that's kind of where you got the rebirth and there's some people in Canada doing that, like the billiards of the world that are re, kind of uh, rebirthed it where you kind of can be a startup again. Right. So kind of bringing it full circle. So it's kind of a virtual loop uh, at that point. So it's quite interesting, but, you know, as I said, I think the independence is independence, right? Like it, it's, it, yeah, I think what you're, I think you're starting to flush out, Tom, is independent really that much different, right? <laughs> like, well, it's, you know, the, the, the question we're trying to answer is, you know, how important in a sense, how important is it? I mean, first talk about what is it? And then it's, you know, it's a little bit mushy or it's a hypercube. Um, and now we're kind of getting to, so you know, I went through client advocacy. We felt it didn't matter. Staff attraction retention didn't really matter. There's, or, or, or there's so many other things, it drowns that out. Carry relationships, you know, in 2023, it doesn't seem to matter. Business perpetuation, we're saying, okay, so it, it matters to this generation, but the next generation may have no choice but to take on a partner of some sort to get, you know, to get to get into the business. So maybe that, you know, the next generation, the business perpetuation question becomes a, you know, a non-starter or a, you know, a non-point as well. Um, so the last one that I wanted to, which kind of brings us to the last point I want to talk about is, financial returns and i'm talking about for the shareholders which may be you know your cap table you know plus you adam or in steve's case entirely him and jeff's case entirely him so i'm talking about the shareholders in general do the financial returns um are they dependent are they enhanced degraded you know the same whether you're whether you are independent or you know somewhere further down the spectrum sorry hypercube so it's like a video game. There's certain stages of a brokerage where you can get the profitability. So if you're bigger size, you can get a lot better EBITDA, right? Like, you know, I think we all agree there's certain cost to operate a brokerage that you can't really jettison at a certain size. You're still stuck with them. Once you get to scale, you've already got those costs. That's when you really magnify it. So obviously profitability, now whether it's company ownership or independence or not, it comes down to scale. The people with more scale tend to get a better return once you get to a certain area. Area. Unless I will preface this, you got a really good niche. You're awesome at your niche. You've nailed a niche that nobody else has got. Then you can compete. And that's what, you know, Reagan Associates mentioned that, hey, if you want to compete, niching is one of your strategies to do it, right? I, I agree with you, Jeff, that I, I think if you take uh, a 10 person shop and a 50 person shop and a 100 person shop, regardless of whether an insurance company has a loan with them or owns a piece of them or owns all of them, the the returns are probably, if they're very similar in nature, are probably going to be similar as well. I don't think that the presence or lack thereof of independence has a huge bearing 
on um, on the bottom line. So let me let me kind of wrap this up with with one more question here. So we've we've gone through our list: client advocacy, you know, X, staff attraction, X, carrier relationships, X, business perpetuation, sort of maybe financial returns. Seems to be more about scale than about you know who who is on your cap table. So earlier in the episode, we we essentially declared each of you guys to be independent, whatever that means. So why do you remain independent? That's my question. Why why are you staying the course, assuming you are, uh, of where you are? Why why have you not partnered up with you know some of the larger larger firms that become a cog a cog in their particular set of gears? I think that um, if and when it makes sense to do so, it's not off the table. Um, you know, like we, I want to do what's in the best interest of our customers, our employees, and the business itself as a as as its own entity. And you can't just if you're going to stand on that mountain that Adam talks about and just and scream and not look at what's in the best interest of those 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 stakeholders, including customers um, and your staff and the shareholders, then. Yeah, you can't do that. Okay, so so from your perspective, it's it's simply a matter of time, timing, and opportunity, probably. Yeah, I mean, it could stay the same until well beyond I I pass away by whoever else is sitting in my chair, or it could be drastically different. It's going to depend. I mean, market conditions and what we can do and accomplish with what we have in front of us that could change too. You might need to adapt. I mean, businesses need to adapt with a changing environment, it may require that at some point, right? Yeah, Steve said that succinctly, said it perfectly. Like, uh, you know, it depends depends on how you feel. Like I, one of the things, the test, I think, and the one thing we brought up earlier is if you're independent, you have the choice of when you do that. And sometimes people, if they aren't independent, don't have a choice. They have a gun to their head. They're not flexible. It's a beautiful thing to have, to live life on your own terms to do that. Now that said, there comes a point where you have a doubt day where you have more good days than bad days or Sunday night before you get into work, you start thinking about it in a negative way. There's certain things that happen in people's lives that may, or things have changed in people's life. They've lost the passion. That's when that that's when a motivational thing will happen. And hopefully people have done something before it gets to that stage. Because, you know, if you ever get to that level, you know, if you're looking at making a change with your brokerage, as my CEO uh, from Vistage says to all the people in our group, selling your business is a full-time job. Adam, last word over to you. For me, Tom, like, what do you sell something that's going to double every two and a half, three years? Like for about a decade, we've had 30% plus growth. And so on the macro of like, hey, why isn't it time to divest anything? It's like, well, because I'm going to have to then take that money and put it into a marketplace and beg for four points of return. There's just a, you don't sell this thing unless you really want it to de-risk and look for some others. So there's there's one. Uh, so two, if we did go down that road, you can un- only really go down the road once. So if you're going to go down the road once and you you give uh, an insurer or somebody an ownership stake, they're probably not going to want to let go of it. So a, a line from a, a friend, Dwayne Cridland, who, who built a nice operation up in the north of Ontario, uh, he said, you know, in the end of the day, as long as you have two capable parties fighting over you, you're going to be just fine. Uh, saying you, you want some sort of bidding opportunity of mutual interested parties to get max value. So... Again, for us, because we've never, for the position A, gone at a time to divest and take a bit, there was never a 
uh, process run on bringing suitors to the table to make sure whatever we did start down the road, there was a maximum uh, execution. And so then the last one of like, I like the, the optionality of the future. And I'm pretty young and my kids are pretty young and our team's pretty young. And I don't really know who's going to want to take this on next or what brokering in our industry looks like in the next 10 years or so. But to Jeff's point is like the only way we were going to have that option is one, not have executed with a strategic partner to cement a, a future and, and two, get to the big enough size to stay off of the chopping block of markets and be big enough to matter for them. So that's our sort of diary of reasons as to why nothing's happened. It's not to say a, a never uh, as I'm a pretty big believer that this is all going to consolidate down to, you know, five, 10 hands. And uh, we're already seeing overlap between markets and private equity and all kinds of things. I think Jeff said it best earlier is that there's two end states for a business. You sold or you go out of business. Right? The, the, the question is, when does that happen? In the meantime, trying to ride that rocket ship and keep your, keep all your doors open. I think a good one, I heard it from uh, Ed uh, Myring, who Adam knows quite well. I think Tom, Steve, you know them him quite well. He always said he looked at a brokerage as an equity, and he looked at the team and what they're doing. And he always said, would I invest my money in this team to grow and get the return every year? I think you have to look at your team that way, right? Is your team, can you continue to outperform the market and do well? Or have you, is your team peaked? I, and I think you got to keep questioning that road ahead of like, what does the road ahead look like? Is it troubled waters? And you should be considering some options or is it smooth sailing and it's going to be different based on teams and geographics and any number of market conditions just wanted to give a quick shout out to our sponsor ifs premium finance thank you very much and to our charity partner excalibur read to ride program is retention important to your brokerage of course it is that's why at ifs we have a cancellation prevention process Want more details? Give us a call. I know you don't always use a premium finance company, but when you do, you should use IFS. Cheers.